Welcome to the Cotton Specialist Corner Podcast. I'm Steve Brown, Extension Cotton Agronomist at Auburn University. And with me are two experienced cotton folks from different parts of the U.S. Cotton Belt, Dr. Mike Jones from Clemson and Dr. Ken Leger from Texas A&M. Welcome, guys. Let's start with introductions. And Mike, uh, you're at Clemson now, but that's not where you've always been. I've actually been here at Clemson over 25, going on 26 years. You're so kidding. Wow. They hired me in July of 1998 after the star cotton extension specialist they had there at the time was lured away by industry. So that gave me the opportunity to get a little closer to home. But Steve, before that, I was at uh, Mississippi State in Stoneville for about four years as a, a cotton research agronomist. I remember visiting you at the Stoneville location where you demonstrated your research on hail damage. That was pretty interesting. Yeah, I actually had a forage blower that I blew ice out on cotton to try to simulate hail. Did a really good job, but it was a lot of work. I I would not attempt that now. (laughs) You just do cotton, right? I am the state cotton specialist, so that's the only crop that I'm involved with. Ken, I think Mike was alluding to the fact that you were there before he was, and I didn't realize it's been 25 or more years, but you've been with, I counted it, I don't know if I'm right, four seed companies and two universities now. Is that correct? I think that's correct. So, yeah, I started out there where, where Mike currently is. And uh, I don't know about the star part. I think uh, I think they uh, they found somebody a whole lot better to fill that spot there at the PD Center. And uh, so after a couple of years, yes, I got uh, hired by SureGrowth Seed at the time. And of course, they quickly through a series of mergers and acquisitions, which was a thing during that that time period, uh, they quickly got merged into Delton Pineland Company uh, when they were a standalone company, and then eventually. Monsanto bought Delta and Pineland, and then I had an opportunity to move to St. Louis and uh, work in their biotech R&D for five years, which was much different than any other thing I had done, and I'm grateful for the time I had there because I learned so much about how to do research, how to do uh, research on transgenic crops and what it takes to get those transgenes commercialized. But then uh, I had an opportunity to move to the biggest cotton patch in the world because I wanted to stay in cotton. So I was like, well, this is the opportunity to move to Lubbock, Texas, where the hub of cotton is. And I went to work for Americot, so there's number three. And then joined your team at Phytogen at the time, Steve, and then worked with Phytogen for about eight years before moving into this role, which I am thoroughly enjoying. Well, last time we did a podcast together, you gave a great introduction on and you described it. I don't know if you remember it. Can you just say it that way? You remember? Uh, no, I don't guess I remember what I said. Well, you said, you know, no matter what, what kind of hat I'm wearing, I still think I'm working for the cotton farmer or something to that oh, effect. And, and that, that is true. Uh, you know, my, my heart is with the cotton grower and the cotton industry. And no matter who I've worked for, I've always worked for that grower just may have gotten paid by a, a different entity. But as long as you do that and, and have integrity, uh, it doesn't matter who you work for then. that You're going to do the same job no matter who's paying you. And you joined the Texas A&M faculty at Lubbock in January, right? In January, yeah, for six weeks. 
And, you know, you might notice for the past six weeks, what has cotton prices done? <laughs> I'm just saying that there could be a relation there. I'm not real sure. Well, does that um, mean that you're going to produce less cotton? So there's going to be less cotton to buy and pushing the price up? Or is I, it- I take no credit or no blame. <laughs> let's just put it that no. way. But, okay. uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoying it here and getting to work with growers from the top of the Texas Panhandle all the way down to St. Angelo area. Uh, so across West Texas, uh, across over 4 million acres of cotton. So I'm, I'm having a blast. Good. Our subject today is variety evaluation, variety selection. I know you guys have been at this a long time. And, and so clearly variety selection is a component of the overall production system, but it's a key component. And varieties provide, in, in today's world, they provide the genetic potential for yield and fiber quality. And since the mid-1990s, they also deliver insect management traits as well as herbicide tolerance traits. And and more recently, we've seen a good introduction or a good array of varieties that also deliver nematode resistance or tolerance, however you want to gauge that. And then sometimes we're seeing more and more maybe reintroduction of bacterial blight resistance, maybe something that was prevalent a few decades ago. But all this has come with cost. And one of my favorite slogans is the seed is where it's at because so much is in the seed and built in the seed and cost is in the seed. And in the early to mid 1990s, a bag of cotton seed typically weighed 50 pounds and cost in the range of of 30 to 35 dollars. And since that period, now uh, cotton is priced variably based on growing region. And unfortunately, here in the lower southeast, we pay the most and subsidize all you guys. And so in, in the lower southeast, a bag of cotton with all the pest management traits, as well as the premium seed treatments, that bag may cost in excess of $800. And that's a more than a 20-fold increase in, in cost. So variety selection really matters. Seed quality, that'll be a subject for another day, but all those things matter. So, uh, again, our subject today is variety assessment. And, Mike, we'll start with you. Talk about your role in variety evaluation there in South Carolina. All right. Well, let me give you a little history. When I first started, Steve, I was not involved in the variety testing program. We had a gentleman up at Clemson who's retired now and, and, and passed away, unfortunately, but he was in charge and he would send the seed already packaged to the research stations. We'd have one trial in the PD area, which is the northern part of South Carolina. It's called the, the PD region, and that's where I'm located. And then we had another trial that we would put in down in the lower, below the lakes, down at uh, Black Bull Research Station, the Edisto Research Station. You have two growing regions above the lakes and below the lakes. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, we kind of look at our state that way. The counties that are above the lake in the PD region are, are a little more closely related to the growing conditions in North Carolina. And those in the southern part of the state are a little bit closer to Georgia. So we're kind of unique. And uh, so we try to put trials in both locations to, to try to make sure that we cover those. And like I said, we had trials both at the PD and the Edisto, and, and we had them split into early and late maturing trials. Uh, back when I first started, there was a pretty big difference in the maturity of cotton varieties. It could go almost two weeks difference, but that seems to have kind of gone away now. It's just more like a week. So, But we had irrigated and we had dry land trials, but we only had two locations, Steve. Uh, and sometimes those trials did not get the importance placed on them that they needed to. And I was trying to stand up in front of growers at our extension meetings and present this data, and I didn't feel real confident about it. 
So it didn't take me long to realize that I needed to try to get involved with these trials. So now I conduct the trials at the PD station. And I also have some county replicated small plot OV trials that I'll talk about a little bit later. Jeremy Green and his technician, Dan Robinson, actually look after the Edisto trials, and they do a really good job down there, too. The reason we tried to expand our trials is every once in a while, we'd have a hurricane come through or, or some kind of phenomenon or a drought. And really, that only left us with one location uh, to try to, to make variety decisions for the entire state. So we, we thought it would be a good idea to try to expand that. So right now, uh, we have between five and seven locations yearly. Now, you mentioned maturity. Do you still have maturity trials of separation there? I tried to keep those maturities separate for a long time, but over the last three or four years, we've been planting and harvesting and defoliating those trials at the same time. So for ease of management, we have joined those together. So now we, we have our early and our later cotton maturity varieties in the same trial. But we still have them separated and an irrigated in a dry land situation. Okay. I will interject here in Alabama. Henry Jordan is our variety testing manager who does a great job. And we actually have a, I don't know if he calls it a normal maturity and a late maturity, but really it's a planting date. We're trying to center planting dates for one set of trials around May 1st and the other set around June 1st. And we typically see different varieties trend towards the top in those different sets of trials. So, all right. So, you got both station locations as well as on-farm location, but you mentioned that the, your on-farm locations are small plots as well. Is that correct? They are, and I actually was, was fortunate enough that our cotton board thought that was important enough to increase the number of environments that we were looking at these varieties. They were turning over so quick, Steve, that we weren't really confident in making decisions with one or two years' data. So uh, to try to compensate for that, we increased the number of environments that we were looking at these varieties within a year. And they gave me some funding to go off station. So right now I'm planning on three off station grower, small plot replicated trials on growers farms. And they actually look after those and manage them with their own management practice. Do you haul around a picker and harvest those? I do. I haul around an old 1822 two row picker. Just oh, with, no fun. No fun. Yeah. It's a lot of work, but our growers seem to really appreciate it. Good, good information, I'm sure. Okay, Ken, I, I, Texas is a huge state, no question. And you're in Lubbock, but talk about all together, how varieties are evaluated in Texas? Well, uh, similar to what Mike uh, described, we have a official, an official variety trial system, uh, one that, that operates out of, out of College Station that serves Central and South Texas. So from the valley all the way up to the Blackland area, just south of Waco, that are, are not separated by maturity. So it's all one trial, uh, and those get quite large. And then here in Lubbock, we have uh, a similar situation where it's not separated by any kind of maturity segment, uh, but more uh, separated by stage. So there are some new variety trials, new varieties and strains versus some uniform irrigated and dry land locations. And here we test at Lubbock, halfway is about an hour north, La Mesa is about an hour south at the Ag Cares facility there. So for the High Plains, we, we use three different locations uh, with various other components that we have some fields on some of those stations that are infested fairly uniformly with root knot nematode. So there are some root knot nematode OVTs. Uh, similar at halfway, there is a field that is fairly uniformly infested with verticillium wilt. So there is a vert wilt OVT as well. And Dr. Jane Deaver has been in charge of, of those trials. And I guess, ironically enough, uh, she's going to be moving to the PD station with Mike there. 
in the next few days. I think April 1 is, is her start date there. So I think she's here till Friday. And uh, But that, that program will keep uh, going on. Of course, with it, they have a breeding program here. Dr. Carol Kelly will, will continue that. And then we have a breeding program down in, in College Station area as well. That's kind of the extent of the small plot trials, with exception to Dr. Ben McKnight, who has been on these podcasts before, uh, as well as Dr. Josh McGinney and Corpus, do conduct, they, they call them monster trials. And I, I think the monster comes from their size, not you know their, their stature, right? But the, these monster trials are OVT-like uh, locations. They're all on farm, not on stations. And they're, uh, they're entry-based trialing system, just like the OVTs are. Some of them are glyphosate only. They do have some that are conventional. You can enter conventional materials in as well. Now, okay, that's the monster trial. Is there such a thing as the race trial? Is that still in effect in Texas? Yes. So the race trials, uh, you know, the rest of the belt would simply call these county extension trials, I suppose. But uh, our good friends, Dr. Robert Lemon and Dr. Randy Bowman, came up with this moniker of race, so replicated agronomic cotton evaluation. So they're large plot on farm, replicated three times. So we, we put those out uh, across the state from the valley all the way up to the top of Texas. Many researchers are involved. Those are Again, entry-based, uh, we've gone to herbicide technology segments. So we do have some that are mixed technologies, which are managed with glyphosate and glufosinate, do have some extinflex onlys, and we do have some enlist onlys. And, you know, I, I guess the high plains is a little bit different from the rest of the belt. We do have quite a contingent of true conventional acres either brown bag or some name varieties uh, that uh, some local seed companies do produce. And we're going to attempt the first one in, in a long time, uh, having a conventional race trial as well to, to serve those growers as well. Now, Mike, I'm assuming most of yours are commercial entries that, that you deal with. Is that correct? They are just like the OVTs. So anything entered in our OVTs, will be planted in the county trials also. But even in your OVTs, are most of those varieties also commercial entries? They are commercial, but, you know, sometimes the, the companies will enter some of their strains. So okay. some of their stuff that's not actually been been bagged yet. And we'll, we'll also test some of those. And now uh, you got a USDA breeder in South Carolina, uh, Todd yeah. Campbell. Do you test some of his stuff as well in your variety trials? I, I don't in our OVTs. We have separate tests that we run with him. That's funded by our South Carolina Cotton Board where we test his elite genetic material against some of the, the elite commercial stuff that's out there. So that that's in a separate trial. And that's just to keep it from getting so big, Steve. Yeah. On your own farm trials, how many entries do you typically have? Uh, this usually ranges between 40 and 50. So you're every bit as big as an OVT. In our own farm trials, and I think in many states, it's going to be a very select number. It's going to be like maybe 8, 10, or 12, something like that. But you're basically repeating an OVT-like study on, on farmer fields, yeah. We are. Now, back five to 10 years ago, I was also doing what was called the race trials. So we would do the large plot replicated trials. They were replicated four times. I normally had between eight and 10 varieties that I thought our growers might be interested in, and they were in those trials. Okay, Mike, once you produce your results, uh, how do you deliver that data to your growers? 
Well, Steve, basically by the, you know, the main extension uh, avenues that we have out there. Of course, we've got a website that has all of our variety trials from not only cotton, but but all the other commodities. So we place them on there. Uh, of course, we pu- publish them in a grower's guide. We have field days and we sign our plots where they can come out and look at them as they're growing in the field. And again, a lot of grower meetings, one of the main interests that they have is is new varieties and which ones they need to be planting. So and normally we deliver through our extension surface. Now, you talk about yield stability, and I think you pull in data even from surrounding states. Talk about that a minute. I do. When I first started, I was kind of shocked that a lot of the varieties that we were growing or were entered in our variety trials actually weren't bred for the southeast. So most of that stuff is bred out in other parts of the country. And we're trying to find varieties that are adapted to the southeast coastal plain, which is where most of our cotton is grown. So I not only look at all the, the variety trials that we have in South Carolina, which is normally five to seven. But I also like to look at the Georgia OVT data and also like to look at the North Carolina OVT data. And I try to put that together in one table that kind of shows how stable these varieties over the southeast uh, coastal plain is. And uh, it's, it's a really neat table. It's got about 70 varieties in it. And it ranks those varieties from the top yielding variety all the way down uh, to the worst and gives our, our growers a pretty good idea of what's stable across the cotton belt and gives them an idea of what they need to grow. I know this is a, a challenge for us in today's environment. Variety turnover is so rapid. But are you trying to deliver three years data in your in those kind of tables? As long as that variety is in the bag and it's being sold and it's entered in our trials, I keep it in that table. Okay. So as soon as it's no longer sold, then I take it out of the table so it's not so large and cumbersome. But uh, as long as it's being sold, it stays in the yield ranking table that I have. Okay. Ken, talk about, again, Big state, lots of different production regions. How do y'all deliver data to growers? Much in the same way. So we're using the typical extension avenues of, of, of getting the data to the local county extension agent. Then they, they get it out to the growers. But we do have a website, uh, at least a couple of websites that you can find data. Uh, but we also, uh, because it is such a large state, and we do have turnover of agents in the 254 counties in Texas, it, it makes it a little tough sometimes to reach every grower. So I know uh, the extension regional agronomists like Reagan Nolan and Jordan Bell and, and others have a grower contact list as well that we, we send those out. Sometimes we use social media to, to get that word out as well. One thing that we're working on right now for those race trials, those arm farm large plot uh, race trials, is developing a logo. Uh, so, Steve, you you and I have experienced a lot of marketing training over the years. And, you know, you, you start thinking about what is w- within Texas, what's the largest extension cotton demonstration uh, out in the field with those race trials. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we're going to develop a logo, have flags, have signs with a QR code to get uh, if somebody drives by and wants to see the plot plan. They can they can find the plot plan and walk the plot. And then use that that race trial logo and everything that's related to race trials, and start to build some brand equity because we we do have something that is of value to to the industry, and we want it recognized as such. So that's I think that will help get the word out a little bit more. But growers do depend on not only those small plot trials in Texas. I would say they probably depend more heavily on those race trials. Those are the requests we get more often than we do for the small plot. And it may just be the size of the state versus the number of locations of each one of those trial types we can actually conduct. 
Let me open a can of worms or, or chase a little rabbit here. As a scientist, and I'll ask you, Mike, first, because you're, you're not actually engaged presently in the large-scale on-farm trials as you once were, perhaps. Which do you think your farmers value more? You're kind of doing the best of both worlds, in my opinion. But if you had large-scale on-farm trials versus small-plot OVT-type trials, which do you value more as a scientist? Well, I value both of them, Steve. I, I actually published a paper on that, actually, where a lot of these trials that we plant, these these race trials that they're called, and our on-farm small plot OVTs are grown at the same farm, kind of on the same soil type, planted at the same time, and harvested pretty close to each other. Uh, so I wanted to kind of compare the yields of these trials to what's in our small plot OVTs for the eight to 10 varieties that are in those trials. And I was pretty, pretty shocked that the yield rankings of those varieties did not change from the small plot trials to the large plot trials. Now, what did change was the actual yield. Small plot yields were about two to 300 pounds more than the large plot yields. And I got to thinking about what might be occurring there. And, and, and a lot of the small plot trials have alleys cut in them with implants. And I think a lot of those implants produce more cotton, more bowls, and that's where you get your yield boost in a lot of cases. Now, I was also shocked though that the large plot trials had less variability than my small plot trials. And I wasn't expecting that. The CVs on those trials were a lot lower. They were less than 10 in the large plot trials. Uh, and I wasn't expecting that in South Carolina with the variability we have in our soils. I'm gonna interject before I let Ken talk. I think I've done enough large scale on-farm stuff, both in, uh, from a university standpoint, as well as a company standpoint. I sometimes struggle with thinking where a variety is in the field has a greater determination than what that variety is. And so I've always thought the small plot OVTs, even though admittedly some of our own experimental sites have soil variability as well, I've always treasured those or, or valued those uh, as a pure measure of agronomic potential. But I think the grower mentality is they like the on-farm data and the real-world performance and so forth. So, and sometimes we see a yield boost or yield elevation because we're we're talking about end effects, as you mentioned, Mike, or and or hand ginning, and we're turning out a a, a greater percent lint than we might see in a in a commercial gin. So, you want to say anything on that, Mike, before we go to Ken? Now I see what Ken has to say on that. Well, I I think there is value on both. For for one thing, those small plot OVTs, while yeah, do you, you get an elevated yield estimate because of implants? Yes, and you know is is that smaller ginning aspect adding to the the yield? Yes, but I I think the relative differences among the varieties stand. So uh, and as a scientist. Uh, and we've seen the same thing, Mike, higher CVs on those small plot trials than our large plots. But as a scientist, I enjoy looking at the small plot trials a lot more because I can walk down those alleys and, and see 50, 60 varieties and have a, a, a mind's eye comparison uh, of 50 or 60 varieties. Whereas you, know, you go to a race trial and it's 8, 10, 12 varieties. So, you know, looking at the, the the breadth of genetics that are out there, I enjoy looking at the small plot trials, but I do think that we're getting more commercially relevant data uh, from those large plots. And, and here we're, we're able to use, uh, we're blessed to have, uh, Texas Tech University has a fiber biopolymer and research institute that has one of the best large research gens uh, I've ever seen. So they're they're, uh, they're able to have constant relative humidity and temperature, and they only gin it 
whenever a certain moisture threshold is passed. Uh, so it's the most consistent ginning that I've seen. And I've been able to, to look at a lot of different recaps of the remainder of fields. And they do a great job. The, the best I've ever seen at that estimating actual turnouts. And you can actually use color and leaf. And at the end of the day, the loan values for the trial is a small fraction of a cent difference from what that grower's recap showed. So, you know, it, it, I think the, the commercially relevant part goes to the large plot. Uh, but I think there is something, some credibility factor with using growers planters, growers harvesters, and they, they're they a part of that trial. They, they own that trial in their mind and they've seen it all year long. And I, I think there is some value with having growers uh, across that region actually grow those trials and, and see it through. Mike, do you do tabletop ginning on your samples? Yeah, we, we have a tensaw gin that we use, Steve, to gin all these samples. When you're talking about three, 400 samples per trial, it's it's a lot of samples to run through. Um, so it'd be impossible to do that on a commercial scale. So, And we do the same here at Auburn. And we probably overestimate, well, we clearly overestimate turnout. We may overestimate some other quality factors, but I do appreciate the, the various differences that we see. And we don't report color grades in ours. We manage everything as a whole rather than maybe how a variety might be individually managed. But um, one thing I'll throw out that I, this is a plug for those that might listen. Uh, I've visited some gins uh, here and in other states that actually get their growers as they bring cotton in to report what variety it is. And, and they get about a 75 or 80 percent record of that. So that's a, but it's a very good number. It's a real world number. As long as you don't have a variety that's uh, in a very introductory phase, if you get several hundred entries or several hundred bales or more or a thousand bales or more from a given variety, you get to see real world quality. And I really encourage gins to take and farmers to take that approach to produce some numbers to to get some real world data on quality. But any comments on that? Do y'all see much of that? Yeah, we, we see quite a bit of that. Uh, I was able to get uh, some data. There, there are five large area gins from north to south that you talk about valuable data to try to confirm what you're seeing in these replicated right. trials. So it, it, it is uh, uh, encouraging whenever you see what those estimates are, particularly on fiber quality, is because a lot of times they may not have the yields. But uh, yeah, real world numbers that support what we're seeing in the trials is always a good day. Uh, the other thing it does, since we do not have the USDA AMS report of varieties planted any longer, what for the last two or three years, it does give us uh, some sort of estimate of market share, particularly when you can get a, a, a pretty big region in, uh, represented there. So that that has helped in terms of trying to choose varieties you may want to work on a research project with for sure, but uh, it, it does help in that regard as well. You know, I was led to believe in some of our meetings, Mike, that that was going to come back, but it has not yet. Do you have any indication on that? I don't. And Steve, that's a valuable piece of information for yeah. someone like me. Uh, I do a lot of presentations uh, on the status of the crop in South Carolina, and it's always really nice to know what varieties growers are planting and have a, have a pretty good indication of, of it being true. So I wish that publication would come back. Yeah, me too. That was a USDA report that usually came out in August or September each year and say, varieties planted and again you could argue how accurate it was but it was a 
particularly what we've argued is if it would even do it post-ginning season and it'd be six months to nine months late, you still get a good record of what's out there. But anyway, that's we can't fix everything today. So, All right, Ken, let's chase another rabbit. Uh, let's put back on your corporate hat and talk a little bit about a variety development from a company perspective. My my recollection is from my 11 years at Fidgen, it was, you know, a multi-generation, maybe eight or nine years of or eight or nine seasons of trying to produce a finished variety. But you've got more experience than I do. Talk about that. Well, I, I guess I was fortunate, you know, when I first entered the seed industry, Sugar Seed was still for the for that year I was I was there before we started merging was all conventional materials. And of course, with conventional materials, you, you know, corporation can't afford to use counter season seed production in Puerto Rico or Costa Rica or South Africa or somewhere. So you were stuck with making generational increases only in the summer. And yeah, you were looking at sometimes 10, 12 years before getting a new variety out. And now with modern techniques, especially using molecular marker analyses to where breeders now are choosing parents based on some traits that they have markers for so they can choose it on the computer and then breed these these lines together. So you're making a more focused cross. And now, you know, you, you've seen that timeline, particularly for uh, when you have a new trait coming out that you're trying to, to fast track a little bit. Sometimes you can get that thing out in four or five years, which is just amazing. So uh, we've seen quite a bit done, particularly in counter season environments where they're getting close to turning three generations a year. And wow. that's tricky, you know, to, to make enough seed, just enough seed to to turn that generation and then go to the next generation to get to that that first replicated trial as soon as you can. Now, it's my understanding, and, and Mike, if you got knowledge too, well, feel free to wait in on this. But it's my understanding that what companies are testing initially, they're testing conventional crosses. And then when they like X, Y, or Z, this line, they like it. Then they begin the integration part and then back crossing to produce a final right. Is that how you understand the process, Ken? I think for 95% of what goes on, yes, that's the case. There are some exceptions where they are doing forward crossing to where you're you're crossing a transgenic by transgenic. But that's not the normal uh, standard procedure. Uh, you, you're correct. And, and the reason breeders do that is... All your genetic diversity is is coming from those conventional lines. So, you know, all transgenics have been downstream in terms of the production cycle. So all the unique combinations are in those conventional lines. And they've been able to, you know, have donor parents to get the transgenes in there that have those genes locked in place to where, in some cases, you're not uh, independently inheriting eight or nine transgenes. So that speeds up the process a little bit. I know they're working on that, but that, that is an expensive process to form what they call a cassette where it has everything in there like they do with some of the corn products. So I know they're working on that because that really does speed things up. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a complicated process. And I know you've been to some of the trade integration greenhouses where you're looking at all these independent independently inherited genes that are in every combination and gosh just the, the nightmare process of sorting through all that and and keeping track of the ones that have every gene you want and produces good cotton 
Anything to add, Mike? I was interested to hear what Ken had to say. We studied quite a bit about the back crossing earlier, you know, when the when the first transgenes come out. And of course, you know, it took four back crosses and they would release it, but it still had a lot of other stuff in there from the from the donor parent. And it, I was interested to hear Ken talk about fast the way they do it now. So it uh, seems like it's a lot more efficient. Yeah, I think some of the early things that would actually accept the transgene, maybe with some of the Coker lines, right? Coker 312, I believe it was. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, Ken, another company perspective. How does a company representative view the OVTs and the on-farm trials? How, comment on that. Well, I, and I don't know that it's it's a uh, consistent response. Some companies, I think, value them very much. I know, you know, Steve, when you and I were at Phytogen, we we valued the OVTs quite a bit. We used them for advancement, in fact. So they, they were of ultimate importance for us. Uh, I think there are some other companies that may not value it as much, but it, it certainly has value to the grower. It has value to even the seed companies who may not value it from a commercial perspective. Still, when they put that data into their, their bigger database, it really increases the footprint and, and serves as a unbiased party uh, evaluation. Because even though in, in our past lives, we've seen instances where our internal data was saying one thing, and we put it in OVTs and we're getting quite the opposite. And we always try to study on why, why did it react differently in the same geography with different testers, which was you know important before you would release a commercial product in that geography. So it has served a, a really good purpose. Those small plot OVTs also provide a chance for the grower to see the best of the best from every company head to head. So that, that is probably the ultimate value of those small plot replicated trials is to, you know, let's see what the best from every one of those seed brands are and let's see them compete head to head and let's see who's up at the top of the page. One thing I would add in reference to the on-farm trials, when that list shrinks from 40 or 50 plus to 10 or thereabout and say each company gets two or three, maybe two, even just two, you'd like to think that they're putting their best shots in there. So it sort of narrows the list down. I don't think that's always true that their best of the best is always there, but that gives me a more condensed list to think about. And Mike, any comments on that? Yeah, that, that reminds me when 1646 came out, it was, it was kind of in a narrowed zone for a few states and, and just put it in the OVTs and it started doing really well. A lot better, I think, than they expected. And then it expanded to different areas and it was doing well in those OVTs too. And before you know it, it was growing all over the cotton belt. It had a lot of environments that it was stable in. So um, I think the OVTs allow you to do that. If we were just doing the large trials, it never would have been in a lot of these trials. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Do you think some varieties test better than they actually perform on farm? Uh, you're asking me. I think that each field that we have on a farm has a variety that's specific to it that's the best for that field. So I would say yes, Steve. But what I try to do by using these yield stability trials is to try, try to do like a gambler. You kind of hedge your risk a little bit. So if it's doing well in a lot of different environments, there's a pretty good chance maybe it's going to do well in your specific field under your management practices. Do you actually come up with a recommended list, Mike? I try not to. Uh, on that list of 70, I say, well, if it's ranked in the top 20, it's probably yeah. a variety that you want to look at. I do give them a top 10, and a lot of the varieties that are planted in our state are from that top 10, uh, but some are not. So 
Kim, what do you think? Do you think some varieties test better than they actually perform on farm? I, I think there are some rare instances where that's the case. And you and I have seen that in, in our careers, but it is rare. And then we could never could explain when that or why that would happen. I think for 99% of the varieties tested out there, uh, just like Mike was describing on stability, that that is the key. You know, if it's if it's in the top 10% of every one of those trials, uh, it's a keeper, right? So uh, it's it, it comes down to consistency of numbers and and number of testing locations, and, and you know, make sure you got a, a good robust testing system. Uh, that that captures most corners of the belt. Yeah, I think it's possible, but it's rare to have one that tests better than it performs. I wonder if it's a variety that is particularly aggressive, and you get that end effect. I, I yes. don't know if that's that's true or not, but that may give it a little more opportunity to to, to branch out and produce some more. I do know some uh, locations that actually trim the plots as they get close to the end. And that's the, maybe the perfect world, but I don't know many folks do that today. But let me talk about what something we've tried to do here. Again, Henry Jordan and I have gotten together, and, and Mike's already talked about this, trying to get the best possible data he can get from the different experiment sites, whether that's research locations that Clemson owns or, or manages or on farm sites. We tried to encourage our own our research stations, Daniel, to carry it out there. And what we said, this was uh, variety testing stuff, my trials, as well as our entomologist Scott Graham's trials. All right. If you had at least four or five cotton trials, whoever had the lowest CD uh, across all their cotton trials, we'd, we'd buy them a steak dinner. So that's what I did yesterday in southwest Alabama. We went down to the Bruton station and bought them a meal because they had the lowest CV. And it, again, it, the whole goal was to encourage precision and accuracy and all that, just quality of, of management on farm. Because if you don't manage in the field with quality, you're going to get junk data. But any, any special things? I know, Mike, you took over yours, so that probably has helped. But Yeah, you know, I put an importance on it because variety selection can, can cost growers a lot of money. Um, so it's probably the most important thing that we need to do as researchers and extension personnel. Um, the biggest issue I saw when I took over is, is they were kind of taking these variety trials and these trial maps and placing them on fields and had no idea how much variability was in the field, which what soil types were in there and how, how they were laid out. So once you took that into account, a lot of the high CVs we were getting uh, kind of disappeared. So really, it's just placing those trials where they need to be. So what, in terms of CV, coefficient of variation, what do you like? What's your number? Well, you like? A lot of these trials have 40 to 50 varieties. So there's going to be some inherent variability just because they're so large. But if I can get one under 15, Steve, I think it's a really, really good trial. Okay. And Henry, he's my statistician. I'll mention him again. He says, all right, there's an experimental CV, but then there's also treatment CV. And so he's he's a sharper mind in a statistical realm than I am. But but again, we'd like this if we'd love to be close to 10 when we start exceeding 20. And I've had some studies that were 40. That kind of hurts our feelings. But oh, here's one thing we did this year that I take credit for. He in 21 or tw of 23 trials, he planted the same variety twice as two entries. I think it was Delta Pine 1822. Right. And and I love that. The the average difference, I want to say, was like uh, across all 21 experiments was like, oh, I think it was around 80 pounds. The low was eight. And then the high was, and again, you're talking about the same variety. 
the high was over 250. So you kind of cringe and that kind of study. But but to me, that's a farmer or layman's way of to look at statistics to, to show why you do statistics. And it also helps you see how variable your tests are. So I, we, I, I thought that was a cool activity. I've done the same thing the last two years, Steve. I've used 1646 in the trial and also as kind of a check that's in there. And it's amazing. It makes me feel really good when those varieties fall right on top of each other. Yes. Yes. I like that. I think it's such a good, and it shows farmers why that, hey, if they're 50 pounds or 80 pounds or 120 pounds difference, how do you declare them different just because you got the same variety? I'd I, I love that. Any other thoughts on how we encourage quality or, or improve the quality of those type trials, Ken? Well, uh, certainly on our small plot trials, they're typically going on fields that that program is used multiple times. So they, they know those fields fairly well. And we are lucky for the most part, particularly in the high plains, that our soil types are, are fairly uniform. But particularly for the race trials that are on farm, uh, I spend a lot of time doing some pre-location uh, analysis. So uh, I don't know about y'all, but I love to look at Google Earth. That is the most coolest thing <laughs> ever invented. But, you know, you can you can overlay the soil map on Google Earth. And so when I talk to a cooperator, get his location, first thing I'm doing is plugging in his GPS, finding the field on the map. And, you know, th there had been some times it's like, hey, you said the west side of the pivot, but can I really go on the east side? Because the soil types are a little bit more uniform there. Or maybe that's the soil type I'm really wanting to test on. Uh, you know, there have been some cases where, you know, simple things like there's a wellhead right in the way. Well, we need to plan the plan around that. There's some simple foolproof things that will keep that field variability to a manageable level. And, and just like y'all, uh, in those large plot trials, if I get 10 percent, uh, I'm very disappointed. Uh, a lot of ours can can go four, five, six percent CV. Wow. And, but the, the small plots can particularly you know, our dry land yields sometimes can be 200, 300 pounds. Well, as you know, as you calculate the coefficient of variation, the denominator is the yield, the, the mean yield. So those lower yielding locations, not only is that, that yield lower, so your, your denominator is smaller, but also in those kind of really high stress locations, every difference in that field is accentuated. And so th those are the ones that, you know, if you have a, a three or 400 pound uh, trial mean, well, you're you're looking, if I can get it below 20%, that's a good day. But anything, you know, 800 pounds or above, I'm, I'm shooting for no higher than 15%. Okay. A couple of months ago, I had two breeders, seasoned breeders, Steve Haig from Texas A&M, who's now my boss here at Auburn, and, and Fred Borland at, at Arkansas, again, I tried to get Jane Deaver. She couldn't quite make it. But uh, I, I asked them about, you know, are they aware of public breeding material that's now been incorporated into the into the commercial arena and is transgenic? Do you all have knowledge of any of those type situations? It's fairly rare uh, in their niche markets. Like uh, Dr. Jane Deaver's program is really fed. Uh, there's a fairly significant organic market. Of course, everything conventional, right? And, and her program has fed a lot of material into that rather small but significant or organic market that, that's south of Lubbock here. Uh, so I, I think it's the development of niche traits. You say traits, you actually mean genetics. 
genetics, correct? Well, like I, I was thinking more like where where did all the root knot nematode yeah. resistance come yeah. from? Public yeah. sector. Yeah. Reniform resistance came really from public sector, right? So I, I think in the new age, public breeders, uh, you know, if they can find that niche to where they can develop uh, those niche markets that, that can that have cottons that have those specific traits, be it verticillium wilt, fusarium wilt, whatever the case may be, uh, I think that's probably the, the direction for, for public cotton breeders now. Mike, that information used to be available to us, but, uh, you know, since the transgenes came on the market, that's not available to, to folks like me. So it's hard to say. I, I know we have a breeding program here in Florence, the PD uh, program, but Dr. Todd Campbell, and one of his big goals is to increase fiber quality. So I would like to think that a lot of these varieties that have really good fiber length and strength have a little bit of that material in them somewhere. I think I've heard, and I won't say names, that that's so-and-so purchased the, the rights to a line and, and work with that. I, again, I, I'm not absolutely sure on that. I did ask at the Beltwide Cotton Conference, or uh, the question was asked. I don't think I asked it. I think Fred Borland asked it. He asked where did the link come from for Delta Pine 1646, and the same question could have been asked for, for Phytogen 444, and they didn't give a straight answer, and then I heard, I, I was in the elevator with somebody later, and they gave me an answer, but I didn't. I, that's interesting, because I, I do think Fred had some lines that were extremely long staple, and I wondered if that was used, but I don't know, so hopefully our public sector breeders are co- contributing in certain ways that, that we'll realize in the future, but I, I hope that's right. So Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the, the early PD work for on varieties was actually done with, with Barbadense, uh, Pima cottons, okay. and they started making crosses to the upland. So the PD breeding program actually started out as, as a kind of a Pima breeding program. Oh, and I did hear at the Beltwide, I, don't, I shouldn't say the name, uh, but it's somebody y'all might know, recognize the name, but it's a company that's, are they crossing Pima and, and Upland together? Uh, now, that's interesting. That's yeah, so an interesting possibility we, in the future. We, we actually have quite a bit of it here. Yeah, quite a bit. It, you can find it. Uh, it is conventional herbicide and insecticide technology. So it is conventional materials, but it, it is an Upland Pima cross and it ends up, fairly early so it's not quite as growthy and and not nearly as as long season and they've been able to class it as ELS cotton so they're getting the the PIMA classification and premium on that cotton and then there's quite a bit of interest uh, and renewed interest in the high plains for sure on PIMAs true PIMAs as well as these these hybrids uh, in fact, we do have, I know of at least a couple of gins that are fairly local that have roller gins as part of their operations. So the infrastructure is there to handle some small level of it. And uh, there's, uh, I get questions quite often about Pimas and hybrids. One part of the variety selection, maybe even up front, is technology, particularly herbicide technology. Do your guys stick to one or do they plan a mix? Is that fairly common for you guys? Is it all in one or, or do you, or they do mix? Mike? Well, in my area, it varies, but I would say most of our guys stick to one technology. And a lot of them stick to one seed company, one seed brand. So um, we're a little different than other parts parts of the country. 
I think that's pretty consistent with here as well. So, yes. Ken? Yeah, and there is a lot of brand loyalty, both uh, the brand of cottonseed as well as the, the trait, the herbicide trait. But, uh, you know, last couple of years here in the High Plains, we've had rough years where there's a lot of failed cotton uh, mm. in the fall. So you end up with a lot of volunteer potential because we don't have enough rain during the wintertime to, to rot that seed. So we will see quite a bit of uh, switching to the opposite technology. Uh, you know, if a guy's been Extinflex, he'll switch to Enlist just to simply try to control the inevitable volunteers that he's going to have that following year. Uh, so that that's probably the the, the exception um, uh, to, to most other areas. But uh, uh, we do see a little bit of everything, all the way from conventional to um, glyphosate, glufosinate management to Enlist to Extinflex. Okay, in the distant past, maybe the last. 20 years or so, we've had periods where we've got King Kong. We have a variety that dominates. And and most recently would be 1646, dominates a lot of acres. You know, it it had a broader footprint than, than originally the perpetrators thought, perhaps. Same with Delta Pine 555, but, you know, 20 years ago. As I look at the information, I don't see the star variety that's going to dominate the, the acreage today. How do y'all think about that in your, your realm, Mike? Yeah, I, I, I've thought about that quite a bit. I don't really see one. There's some varieties that yield very close to 1646. But if you look at the fiber quality package on those varieties, they're nowhere close to where 1646 was. And 14, uh, 1646 still does very well in our trials. So our growers are still planting quite a bit of it. Okay, for 2024, you think it'll be half the acres in South Carolina? Uh, probably a little bit less, but okay. a pretty good percentage. I did a meeting this week in northeast Alabama, Cherokee County. And, you know, there's a little bit of 16, but they've gone another route. And it's, it's a totally different growing environment. But, but I don't see in the star, star variety. How about it for you, Ken? No, and, and of course, you and I have been around long enough as, those are rare instances, you know, and you kind of hit on two during my career that, you know, that had just such broad adaptation and usage. Uh, those instances are rare uh, in the cotton belt and, and really in the high plains uh, with elevation and latitude changes. You can drive 50 miles in either direction and the environment changes in terms of heat units and water availability. It's just tough to find one variety that goes from the top of the Panhandle all the way down to San Angelo and then really all the way down to the valley. Uh, our environments change so drastically uh, compared to other parts of the belt that it, finding that that big uh, racehorse that, that will go on every acre is is nearly impossible in, in our geography. Okay. Any other final issues or thoughts think we ought to talk about? Well, I, I think we, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about marker technology. And a lot of growers don't understand what markers are. But I know in, in, in my career, I've seen, you know, things like the first root knot nematode trait come out that was great at suppressing nematodes. But, man, it was some yield drag there. We go back to the, you know, the first herbicide technology, Roundup Ready. Great trait, but there seemed to be some yield drag. and I think we have to mention that marker technology has, has become so good that, you know, these markers are simply segments of DNA. And back when they were first developed for cotton, 
well, gosh, they were there was long, long segments with a lot of stuff somewhere that that gene of interest was in there somewhere. But there was a lot of stuff that we didn't understand what it was that was carried forward. And now they've gotten so precise on cutting that segment of DNA down on that marker to where it's got the gene of interest plus very little extraneous DNA. So you're not carrying a bunch of unknown uh, traits uh, in, into the cross. And that, to me, has contributed to uh, lots of advancements. Uh, you know, the most recent is probably the, the reniform resistance we've seen in, in some varieties that are just jaw dropping. Uh, that, that one gene could do that and there's not a yield drag. That is a, a, a testament to the, those guys' successes. Now, are you saying that marker technology is going to replace the cotton breeder? Oh, absolutely not. No, <laughs> there's there still plenty of traits out there that we don't have markers for. You know, I don't know what the proprietary fiber traits may or may not be out there. You know, uh, even in the companies we work for, they held that as a closely held secret. But, you know, I think eventually we'll get to things like that. That will, and the may exist now, we just simply don't know. So, no, it, there are still plenty of traits. You know, the, the one I, I think about here is verticillium wilt. We think maybe six to 10 genes control verticillium wilt tolerance. And so, you know, this just think of the complexity of trying to identify all of those multiple traits to try to confer true resistance. Currently, that, that breeder has to walk out in the field and say, I want this plant, not that one. So there's there's still a, uh, I hope to have conventional breeders in the field for a long, long time, or at least till I retire, Steve. Well, I thought that, hey, the breeder is where it's at. And if we do away with them, in fact, well, just a lot of thoughts about this, but I think there's value from that person, man, woman, I won't say boy or girl, but but can go out there and they they see something that, Maybe the computer doesn't see. In fact, Fred Borland was talking about, he used the term serendipity. Some yep. of the best stuff that's ever been produced has been, well, we did this and wow, we didn't expect this. And there it is. I think that the place and the role of the cotton breeder, and I don't obviously don't, I'm not keen for a day, but in a company, but I'd still want to be developing that talent because they can do a lot of things. My favorite story about that is when I first joined, uh, joined Sugar Seed, well, the breeder was Bob Bridge, Dr. Bob Bridge from the Delta Experiment Station. Uh, the man, right? I mean, he had germplasm and that was commercialized for lots of parts of the acres. And so that first season I was there, I asked Bob, I said, hey, can I come out? I would like to come out and just watch you when you're walking your F2s, because at F2s, they're selecting single plants. So we went out to Tribbett, Mississippi, and I'm walking behind them. I'm thinking, man, I'm at the foot of the master here, you know, fix to learn a lot of stuff. And he put a little ribbon on a plant, and the next two or three, he didn't put a ribbon on. And I'm watching this, and I'm I'm looking, and I don't see it, Steve. I'm like, and finally I asked, I said, Bob, I said, can you kind of walk me through your decisions here? I said, why did you choose this one? And not this one, this and this and this one that, to me, looked just as good. He says, heck, I don't know. He said, if I do it tomorrow, I'd probably choose a different one. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to tell that same story when I first started at Stoneville. I, I, I spent a lot of time with Bill Meredith, and he was telling me about uh, Bob Bridge and, and the varieties that were – he actually 
crossed two varieties that you would think you'd never cross. I mean, they were high yielding varieties at all. And the genes just kind of combined in the right right situation. And, and we got these new high yield and early maturing cottons that were grown during that time. And Ken, I guess you'll grow 125 and some of those were, were some of those. So that's a funny, funny story. So it's it's a lot of art to, to cotton breeding. Yes. And there still is. Despite all these marker technologies, at some point that breeder has to go out there and select that plant. And that's where the art comes in. Long live the cotton breeder. Amen. <laughs> Any other comments? I, I guess I'll, I'll reiterate, you know, uh, Mike had, had mentioned the South Carolina Cotton Commission. Uh, we couldn't do any of this testing without, you know, participants and support. Uh, that has been key. So, you know, Cotton Incorporated is very supportive. The state support committees are very supportive in, in testing efforts. Here in the High Plains, we have Plains Cotton Growers that has a Plains Cotton Improvement Program. You know, the seed companies participate in these trials. They're a fee-based system that subsidizes the cost of these. So without all those contributing organizations, uh, we wouldn't be able to do all this variety testing and, and get information out for growers to make good decisions. I just encourage growers to make sure they're doing their homework and getting as much information as they can. It's funny in these trials, like these small plot OVTs, the lowest yielding variety in there would make 1,100 pounds. So if a grower had a field of 1,100 pound cotton, he'd be really excited about that. But if you look at the highest yielding variety in that same field, it's like 1,700 pounds. So there's a 600 pound difference you're giving up, you know, with 80 cent cotton. That's that's a pretty big decision they're making. So uh, make sure they're doing a good job of picking these varieties. Steve, I always tell growers that, you know, you make the variety selection decision one time and you live with that decision all year long and you set the genetic potential for that field with that selection. Well, hopefully this has been a practical, meaningful discussion about variety selection for producers and others who make decisions across the U.S. cotton belt. Well, thanks to our listeners for joining this session of the Cotton Specialist Corner podcast. We do appreciate the sponsorship and promotion of Cotton Incorporated, and I do appreciate the insights of my fellow cotton specialists, Mike Jones and Ken Leger. So thanks one and all. Mm-hmm.